Good afternoon. I hope lunch was good. Excellent. Was yours? Hmm? Was yours? Mine was very good. And I thought over lunch, we should talk a little more about this basic beginning of insight here. Didn't have, didn't really have a strong sense that it came across quite as clearly as I, I would like it to. Does anyone, would anyone like to comment or say something? Yeah. Um, I, I would, I would like for you to help, help me um, keep from falling into the pitfall mm-hmm. of, given that there is. There is no self and no independent thing that is apart from the experience. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's easy to fall into the delusion that, well, nothing exists. Ah, that would be a bad place to go. Uh, and how, how do we, um, how is that conclusion? come to by some people, I think. Um, it seems to me that there, that I've heard about that idea out yeah. there. And how, do we, and how do we resist it? How do we, how uh-huh. do we not fall into it? Okay, well, that, that's, that's all part of having, first of all, a clear understanding, and second of all, having a, having a clear understanding is verified through direct experience. And um, it would be a, a curious direct experience to have that nothing exists. <laughs> uh, so one thing I can say for certain is anybody, anybody who holds to the notion that nothing exists did not arrive at it through direct experience and it's not an insight knowledge. But that's that's not enough of an answer. Let's let's look at it. Uh, let's let's look at. Let's do the only thing that we can do as a group like this is continue to investigate these notions um, intellectually and conceptually. So, first of all, tell me why. You think that anybody might come to that conclusion? Well, the the realization that everything that we know and and we can only know through perceptions, which ultimately give rise to mind objects in the mind. Yes. Yeah implies to me the possibility that, well, everything is in the mind. Okay, yes. Okay. okay. And that means, so that leads to the conclusion, not that nothing exists, but that nothing exists except the mind. Yes. Yes. All right, yes. And, and that's good. That's, that's something that we should look at. Now, I did, I did point out to you that we come from this place ordinarily of 
we take it for granted that this world out there and that we have a pretty good idea of what that world consists of, right? But I pointed out to you that all that you really know from direct experience are sensations. And that your mind has the, the, the whole idea of the world that you have is a concoction of your mind to explain those sensations. And as concoctions go, it's a pretty good one because for the most part, it explains those sensations pretty well. Um, it's a model in the mind of a reality that it assumes is out there on the other side of sensations. And your mind tries to discern the rules of, of causality that drive that world that it can never know except through sensations by, by just examining the order in which the sensations arise and pass away and, and the seeming connections between them. And that's exactly the truth. Um, now somebody could, and historically people have, said, well, actually sensations are just mental representations anyway. Well, let's for a moment, let's, let's switch back to the physical paradigm. From your eyes and the sense organs in your ears and the sense endings in your skin and so forth, what goes to your brain are nerve fibers and what the information is communicated in the form of a little electrical impulse that travels from a nerve ending here up to someplace there. If you examine the information coming from your eye and the information coming from your tongue or your hand or anything else, it all looks exactly the same. It's identical. It's electrical impulses traveling along nerve fibers. Some nerve fibers are a little bigger, larger in diameter, some are a little smaller in diameter, some nerve impulses travel a little more quickly and some a little more slowly, but all they are is electrical impulses. Okay? So from the physical, purely physical point of view, my brain is constructing a reality out of nothing but nerve impulses. And essentially, when it takes visual information and tactile information and somehow or another, miraculously, it's, it's managed to make enough sense out of that that I have a world that there's things that I see and things that I touch and they match up with each other and they all seem to be consistent. That's a minor miracle of physiology, <laughs> right? But there's no question that that's what happens. I mean, from the fertilized ova, a being with a nervous system developed and it came out into the world and it just had this information arriving along these different nerve fibers. And uh, it made sense of it. This brain made sense of it. And it labeled one group of nerve fibers vision and made a different kind of sense of, of that information than it did the impulses coming from those that labeled the ear. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? But that's not something... Besides being amazing, it's not... Uh, it's, it's, a, it's incredible in that sense, but it's not non-credible. As a matter of fact, 
it's pretty indisputable mm -hmm. that something like that happens. And we're in a wonderful position because with the accumulated scientific knowledge we have, we can take a perspective like that. We can understand it and appreciate it. A thousand years ago, boy, I could not have could not have done the explanation I just did to anybody. <laughs> what are you talking? About? <laughs> okay. Well, we realize that switching back to the mind, that. Color, shape, taste—you know, saltiness, sweet, bitter, uh, sensations, warmth, cool, hard, soft—all these other things. These are <coughs> mental interpretations, and the things that we attribute them coming from are represented in the mind by these sensory interpretations. They're a kind of—they're a simple kind of concept. That's uh, called a sense percept. The simplest concepts of all are the mental representations that we have of warmth, coolness, red, green, yellow, hard, soft, all these other kinds of things. And out of, uh, out of those sense percepts we've built everything else. But sen the, the sense percepts themselves are mental in nature. They're mental representations. But wait a minute. What did I do earlier? I said we had sensations and mental objects. All of a sudden, it's collapsed. There's nothing but mental objects. <laughs> Sensations, after all, are just another kind of mental object. And yeah, sure, we have hypothesized that there's a world out there that these sensations come from. But since they're just mental objects, maybe they just come from the mind. So what people have done with this is they've gone and they've said, well, yeah, doesn't that happen when we go to sleep at night and dream? You know, or we have a hallucination or something, is we have sensations and we experience them as though they were real, but they're definitely not coming from outside. The things that you see and hear and, and feel in your dreams, you know where they're coming from. They're coming from your mind. Mm -hmm. And so people said, you know what? There's absolutely no reason for us to assume that that anything exists outside the mind. And that's a pretty clever idea, and the people that thought of it really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we, uh, there is a sense in which it's quite acceptable, but there's another sense in which it's not acceptable. And it all has to do with what you mean by mind. So, if by mind you mean your mind, somehow you're taking some ownership of it and giving it some special status, you stepped into some really deep doo-doo. Uh, it's called solipsism. Nothing exists except my mind, everything comes from my mind, my mind creates everything, you're in my mind, you're in my mind, the whole world's created by my mind, it's just my mind, my mind, my mind. And that's a bad place to go. <laughs> on the other hand you say okay there's some part of mind that I can't get at at all that causes these sensations to come up and it does so according to its own rules and 
my picture of the world is just the model I've made of how those rules work. So, nothing exists outside of mind, but then there's my mind that experiences these sensations, and my mind that figures out, that creates a model of the other part of the mind to account for how those sensations happen. But then there's that other part of mind where the sensations come from, and it follows its own set of rules, and the best I can do is try to figure them out. Well, wait a minute. What's the difference between calling that another part of mind and just calling that materiality? <laughs> there is no difference. You see? Will you say that again? There, there is no difference between saying that mind consists of my mind and this other mysterious mind stuff that has its own rules and delivers sensations to my mind. There's no difference in saying that and saying there's a material world that follows its own rules and causes sensations to come into my mind. We've got a complete circle. If you follow it logically, if you get stuck halfway, you get in the solipsistic mess. And my mind becomes all there is. So, one of the ways that you might come to the conclusion that everything is in my mind and that nothing really exists is to follow that route but not follow it all the way to its end. What really the process of insight is suggesting is that we do something that's very different than that in a very interesting way. Okay? So, let's come back how we normally experience things. There is a world out there that I assume accounts for my sensations, and I try to figure out how that world works so that I can function in relationship to it. Our normal picture is world and then conscious me. Okay? Great big world, one tiny little part of it, it's me, my consciousness. Okay? Now what we've looked at is that consciousness has two kinds of objects, mental and sensations. And we're really comfortable with the notion that we can create a model of and live in that model of what is responsible for the sensations. And then we don't ever ask ourselves, I mean, we, we do ask ourselves where the sensations come from and why they are the way they are, and that's how we build up our model. We don't do the corresponding part of saying, well, where did these thoughts come from? Where do these ideas come from? Where do these emotions come from? And trying to figure out that part of the world. That's the part of the world, okay, if this is the external world and then here's this little bit that's the conscious me, then there's this other whole part and that's the unconscious me. So, my sensations are coming from this world. My thoughts, my emotions, my ideas, my reactions, my beliefs, my intentions, my desires, my aversions are coming from this other thing that's just as invisible as the material world that lies on the other side of my sensations. So what this insight is doing is saying, saying that if we want a more realistic picture, there's the little conscious, there's the conscious mind right here. There is the whatever 
that's responsible for the sensations. And then there's also the whatever that's responsible for all the mental objects. So let's do the same thing. Why not do the same thing that we do with the sensations? We create a model to account for where these sensations are coming from. Now, let's create a model that accounts for the mental objects that we experience and why we experience them in the way we do. Isn't that, in fact, what we really want to know? We're not worried about how cars work and how physical objects interact with each other. We've got that more or less handled. Why do I feel the way I do? Why do I react the way I do? Why do I want the things and, don't, and will not want the other things I do? Okay? So this insight is really, it's about saying, okay, obviously there's something that is not me that's responsible for my sensations. And there's also something that is not me that is responsible for all of the mental objects that I experience. So let's see if we can get some insight into that other thing that we've ignored all this time. Is, is, is that a way to avoid falling into nothing exists? Now, the part of the thing, let me go back to nothing again. The part of the thing that's true is that the model that you make in your mind of whatever lies on the other side of your sensations, I guarantee you it bears little resemblance. Just enough to work. And just, and just so long as your mind keeps filtering out everything that doesn't fit. So, you also have a sort of a model of who you are, of your mind, of me. Oh, I like these kinds of things, and I have these kinds of preferences, and I'm this kind of personality, and, right? It's your self-view is very, it's a very similar kind of construct to your worldview. It's just a hell of a lot more poorly developed. And a lot less functional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it seems to me that <clears throat> this is where psychology has really actually done some damage in creating the idea that, you know, where do your thoughts and feelings come from? They come from all this other past experience, you know, all you you experienced this in your childhood and therefore, you know, but it's all very self like there is a self in your history, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, if you follow the like binding consciousness of this is my story, yeah. this is what happened to me, and that's why I feel and think the way I do, and it all keeps it all into this very my mind kind of mm -hmm. uh, idea, as opposed to it's coming from out there, yeah. um, which is a, a like a totally different view. But it seems like the common psych pop psychology view that is kind of spread in our society is um, it's all coming from you still. That's right, yeah. Uh, that, that is the problem. And it, it's, it's not that there's not a good basis for that. I mean, this body, this body is a part of the whole material universe. And this body is constantly changing. Every time I eat and defecate, every time I breathe in, breathe out, you know, the parts of this body get exchanged with the whole. 
Um, whether it's literally true or not, you've all heard the thing that, that every atom in your body is replaced every seven years. Mm-hmm. All at once in the middle of the night at 1210. <laughs> 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 no, gradually, all the time. Um, and we're connected with, with everything else. Uh, and, but we can look at this body and we can trace its history. I, I got this scar on my arm from the time that, that happened and so on and so forth, right? So the, the part that's true about psychology is that we are formed by the past experiences that apply to this discrete massive mentality of mental processes that although it's constantly changing and although there, there are mental processes you once had that you don't anymore and that you do have now that you once didn't. So it's constantly changing the way the body is. There still is a certain history traceable over a certain period of time like there is with the body. And that's what psychology works with. But the problem, and you can't just blame the psychologist for this, is that we identify that with a more or less permanent and very discreet and separate self. And that's, that's where we get off. You know, my little model that I made with my arm gestures, we've got the world here, materiality, and the world of mentality here, and the little piece of consciousness here in the middle. Well, more realistically, let's join these two big things all together, and there is, there is a whole. It is neither material nor mental. It's, it's both, but it's more than both. That is reality. And then what we have is this little spot of subjective consciousness that each of us has. And it's just that this little bit of consciousness is functioning on the assumption, first of all, that there's the mental and the material and that the two are separate, and that somehow this consciousness is a discrete and separate self. So this, the progress of insight is trying to start from where we are and move us towards a completely different division or di- completely different vision of everything without the division. Mm-hmm. So when we see everything as mental and material, that's not the end of it. Mm-hmm. Right? That's only the beginning. That's taking where we are now and putting it into a more useful perspective. Because where we're going to get to is a place where there's neither mental nor material. Because mental and material are just ways that our mind has of organizing the different kinds of experience we have. Um, there were a couple of... Uh, can, you, can you relate then um, the model you created right now, or you, you talked about it, to the, sub, uh, to the collective consciousness of color, and, and when you Absolutely. place consciousness with mind, our little part of consciousness is part of the, the huge uh, consciousness or mind, and yeah. then what, when we pick up things which we think are outside, it's just part of this bigger consciousness or mind? Yes, you can, especially the part about Carl Jung's collective unconscious. He did tweak to something that's really valid, that when we start to speak of the unconscious, it it ceases very quickly ceases to be private and individual and becomes collective. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Is the culminating insight of nirvana um, kind of verify experientially the existence of a world beyond mind, or beyond the personal sense of mind? Does the experience of nirvana... Like if... You know, we can... Um, <coughs> Extrapolate that there's a world beyond mind, mm -hmm. um, but it seems if nirvana is the stopping of our usual experience of mind and the touching of suchness in some sort of way, yeah. um, does that then give one the experience of like knowing suchness in a certain way, not conceptually, but yeah, it gets you know what, I mean? what exactly it's like what piercing is. the mind thing. The experience of knowing suchness in a particular way by simply, nirvana is the stopping of the mind which makes it also the stopping of the world. And we don't, we don't have any experience of suchness for the simple reason that the activities of the mind, mental formations, the mind-made world, stands between us and that experience. So when the mind stops and the world stops, you have a completely different kind of experience. When the mind starts up again, the difference is that the mind knows that what it makes is not suchness. It knows that it knows that suchness is. You know, the Buddha was called Tathagata, which means gone to suchness. And that's what happened, gone to suchness. That's what happens in Nirvana. You go to suchness. You may go to suchness for five minutes, but eventually you can permanently go to suchness. <laughs> and it's, just, it's, it's the realization that the fabrications of the mind are nothing but fabrications of the mind. That is the, the final end result of it. But when the mind tries to make sense of this conceptually, it makes all kinds of mistakes, including the nothing exists except the mind, and the only mind I know is my mind, so therefore my mind is all there is, and the solipsistic uh, uh, view. There's a lot of mistakes that the mind can make. And this is not, this is the danger of trying to figure these things out. It's absolutely essential to try to explain these things to you so that you can discover them yourself through insight. But if you think about them too much, you're going to come to wrong conclusions about it. And once you come to wrong conclusions about it, that's just one more obscuration that you have to penetrate before you can see how things really are. And we have seen how some people have gotten into that trap, that they think that, for example, emptiness is the fact that not, none of the mind's fabrications really exist outside of the mind. And none of none of the fabrications that we create to explain our sensory experiences are, are really accurate representations of what is causing our sensory experiences. So it's very true that this is all 
in that sense, coming from your mind. It's when you make that little step and say, it's only coming from my mind and absolutely nothing else. Now, it's my mind that causes me to perceive you the way I perceive you, but it's not that you don't exist. It's just that what you really are is something that's, to tell the truth, beyond my mind's capacity to grasp. And so there's always going to be that limitation. So, emptiness is just saying this, that everything is empty of being the way it appears to be, to be your mind. Everything is empty of being the way we perceive it, because perceptions are mental formations. Uh, one of the things about when we say things are empty, we mean they're not self-existent. Now that's something that, back in the old days, that was an amazing idea. For most modern people, that things are not self-existent is, hey, piece of cake, I've known that since I was six. <laughs> self-existent means that somehow it comes into existence independent of other things, that it's, it's a partless whole, that... Uh, it's not subject to the same laws of causes and condition that everything is. That's what it means to be self-existent. Um, that's basically the definition of God. God was not created. God is not the result of causes and conditions. God is not limited by cause and conditions. God can do anything that God wants to. Right? God is totally powerful. Um, God does not have parts. God is a good example of something that's self-existent. People used to think there were a lot of self-existent things. As a matter of fact, naively, uh, most children, up to a certain point in their life, take it for granted that the different things and the different objects and people that make up their life are self-existent. But nowadays, especially, they quickly learn that there's no such thing, that everything's due to causes and conditions, everything's made of parts, nothing really lasts and nothing has those qualities of self-existence. So that's one thing. Emptiness means that things aren't self-existent. That's one part of the illusion that's gone. And the other part was the part I was just talking about. Emptiness means that things don't have a self-nature corresponding to the way we see them. The nature of things is something our mind projects onto. In other words, I experience these sensations. Therefore, I decide there's something of such and such a nature that's impacting my sense organs and causing those sensations. And emptiness says, things don't have that self-nature. That self-nature is just a projection of your mind. And no two minds are going to create exactly, or going to project exactly the same nature on the same phenomena. So things are empty of a self-nature. That's what emptiness means. But people get confused about it. Think, emptiness means that everything comes from my mind. And in the worst case, they think, well, gee, if that's the case, then I learn the tricks, and I can make the world be any way I want it to be. If I just learn the rules, my mind creates my reality. But your mind does create your reality, but it creates your reality within the constraints of suchness, the totality that you are a part of. And the naive notion that you could ever use your mind following any set of rules to alter your relationship with totality is, that's where it gets observed. So, yeah, we don't want to fall into that trap. We don't want to go to that place. 
what we want to recognize is, okay, things aren't quite the way that we're used to perceiving them. And that if we just use the faculties that we have, with the guidance of these teachings to tell us where to look and what to look for, then we can begin to construct a far more useful and usable uh, interpretation of reality. Does that help? Yes. Are there any other questions or comments? So the hard part of this is going to be, right to the very last, there is no self or person apart from the experience of mind and body. We just, you know, (coughs) that's kind of hardwired into us. And it's not easy to get beyond that. And of course, along the way, you're bound to ask yourself the question, even if it's true, why, why would it, that sounds terrible, why would I want to know it? <laughs> uh, and, and the answer that, I mean, that is ultimately the insight that you will gain. If uh, we skip ahead a little bit here. Yeah. The dukkha knowledges, knowledges of suffering. Should your insight process happen to include those, it's because of your attachment to the idea that you are a separate self. What you're having insight into is the emptiness that I just described. Nothing nothing is from its own side the way it appears to be. That's, That's emptiness. Impermanence. There are no things. There is only a process of life. Um, and that trying to make yourself happy through clinging to things that only have a nature that your mind has projected onto them and that are so totally impermanent that they aren't even things, they're just process. That's a terrible place to be. Right? Here I am, a real self, in a world that's impermanent and empty and anything I cling to is only going to be like grabbing a hot iron because I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to get hurt by it that's what's responsible for these and you have to work through these to get to uh, to get to this stage of realization when you finally let go and what, ha- what causes you to let go, of course, you can never completely let go, I think, until you've had some kind of nirvana experience. The mind stops. When the mind stops, then the reality becomes apparent in a way that dispels the illusions after that. Then you don't have the attachment. You no longer have the attachment to self. You're willing to let go of it, and what you discover on the other side of that is the most wonderful thing that I am not separate, separate. That there is only this interconnectedness. There is only suchness. And that what I thought was this self that I need to worry about 
the loss of is just it's just a way that the mind looks at itself and it's nothing more than that and once it becomes just a way of the mind looking at itself it becomes much more fun Kind of like the characters in, uh, what do you call those games that people play, Dungeons and Dragons and things like that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can be far braver as a character in Dungeons and Dragons and far less attached to the hit points and damage done to you. <laughs> Simply because, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's just a make-believe. And rather than rather than abandoning rather than abandoning the mind's perception of its separate selfness, it now becomes part of a game. And as part of a game, you know, it's it's a lot more fun than when you thought it was real. that is the hard part and this is the first as you say we're starting where we are we're pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps this is our first inkling through direct experience that the self that we're so attached to might not be real is when we have the insight that well a large part a significant part of our conscious experience doesn't include a knower. It doesn't. It doesn't require a self. That the self is somehow or another a totally optional, dispensable uh, something that gets added in from time to time. When in your meditation, whether you're doing walking meditation or sitting meditation, or even in your daily life, when that realization comes up that you know. A, Put it the way I did before. In the seeing, there's only the seeing. In the thinking, there's only the thinking. There, there is the thought and the knowing of the thought. There's the visual object and the knowing of the visual object. There's the feeling and the knowing of the feeling. But there's no, no one who knows. And you'll have that experience. And it'll come to you. And when it does, that's an insight. That's what you want to cultivate. Yeah. Real quick, so what is the function of the self? The function of the self. The function of the self is to perpetuate the endless wheel of birth and death. Yes, I'm sorry. Let me explain that. Okay. Why, why do our genes cause our nerve cells to wire up in such a way that we construct such a strong belief in the self. It is so that we will behave in ways that protect the well-being of this self and make sure that this self spreads its genes and nurtures its offspring. That's why. <coughs> yes? So I was thinking about uh, compassion in all of this because uh, 
you get to a point where you realize this is all make believe, and you see other people suffering, yeah. um, you imagine feel part of that, but yet see the the fallacy, yes. and so I can imagine how you can have compassion for their suffering, and yet see how ridiculous it, <laughs> it is in a way. Yes, and exactly. And so at the same time, it's like there's that. Not separation, but kind of a different perspective of looking at others suffering, because you see how how built on a fallacy it is. Yeah. Um, so how does how does compassion work once you see how how uh, I don't want to say ridiculous, but how um, unreal this reality is? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. There is uh, an analogy that I've come up with that I think explains it fairly well. And that is, picture uh, a mother with a young child, a little baby, and say somebody makes a face and the baby gets scared and starts screaming. The mother feels total, total she wants to comfort, she wants to ease, she wants to relieve the suffering. But at the same time, she's turning to her friend that made the sound, and she's laughing, it's so, it's so funny, because <laughs> 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 they scared by this thing. <laughs> or your four-year-old has a little alley and acts like it's the end of the world. Well, you know, you, you, want, to, you want to do anything you can to ease it. You love them, you, you, know, you feel great compassion, but you don't take it seriously in the same way they do. Except that... You know, our little alleys unfortunately lead to wars and <laughs> people. Yeah, and, you know, and, you know, yeah, I mean, exactly. it's all based on this, yeah. all these great fallacies. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A terminology question. In all the descriptions of the different stages of insight, there's like, uh, I, I don't know where I, I have my sheets on me, but there's things like the knowledge of, and the knowledge of the perception of, and the knowledge of the desire. And I was wondering if you could clarify what the distinction is between these like knowledges of, or knowledge of the perception of, and, and what they mean by knowledge and perception, and, and all those terms in these cases. So to better be able to read that map. Okay. Uh, does everybody have their list of knowledges handy? Because I didn't make a slide with all of them on it. Although I could skip. Now, the there's one on the second ago that had a bunch of them. Or maybe the... Uh, well, if we look at this one. I yeah. Or like 4A is the knowledge of arising and passing away, and 4B is like the knowledge of the contemplation. Okay. Uh, right. That okay, right? that's a good example. Right. Um, somewhere here for... Yeah. <laughs> okay. Knowledge of contemplation of arising and passing away. Okay, it's a knowledge of arising and passing away. Okay, the knowledge of arising and passing away is what happens is this is basically uh, stage six or seven of samatha. Your mind is really sharp, really clear, really focused. You single point of focus. It's so it's so clearly focused that each sensation you see it arising, you see it pass away, you see the next one arise, the next one pass away. Thought comes along. You see the thought arise, you see it pass away. If that thought triggers another one, you see the new thought that it triggered arise and pass away. If it generates an emotion, you see the emotion arise. And emotion. So, you have the knowledge 
that you have uh, is this ongoing, this continual, eternal, never-ending process of arising and passing away of one object after another. Right? So that's the knowledge of arising and passing away. The knowledge of contemplation of arising and passing away is adding another dimension to it. It's like your mind is saying, if that's the way things are, what's the significance of this? Okay? And the significance of this is, is impermanence, transience, change, non-lastingness, that everything is ephemeral. And it is the contemplation um, contemplation is. Not, I would. I don't really like that word, but I. I haven't. I haven't tried to re-translate these titles from Pali. Is it kind of like a process of like reflection that's described in other parts? Yes. I. I it, it's in a sense. It is the. Okay. You, you had an insight into the fact that everything is just arising and passing away in sequence, one after another. And that insight then in turn becomes an insight experience posing a new insight problem. Well, if everything is just arising and passing away, what does that mean? And that leads into the next one, which is dissolution. Uh, in dissolution, your unconscious mind just creates this powerful urge to watch what's happening, and you just see everything passing away. In particular, in the knowledge of dissolution, you see not just the passing away of the object. Because up until now, you were really seeing the arising and passing away of objects, and you weren't noticing that the consciousness that knows the object was arising and passing away along with it. Now you zero on that, and when the mm -hmm. object passes away, then the consciousness passes away. So this is a new insight. And as a new insight, it's a new insight problem as well, uh, which leads to the next, which is the knowledge of appearance is fearful, although um, there's, there are two names for this one. Knowledge of appearance is fearful. I don't know why I didn't put the other name on any of these. The other is called knowledge of fear, because it can happen in two ways. If you're not so attached to yourself, then if you have piti, if you have joy and tranquility, uh, and some degree of equanimity when you have this experience, it's going to be merely the contemplation, it's going to be, the knowledge is going to arise that the appearance of things as, as real and having a self-nature and as graspable is it's it's fearful because it's a trap because things aren't that way and anybody who thinks they are and tries to grasp to them is going to get hurt so it's just the knowledge of contemplation of appearance is fearful but sometimes it's described as a knowledge of fear and that's because if a person still believes really strongly in themselves they haven't weakened that belief at all and especially if they don't have the lubricating moisture of joy and tranquility and equanimity, they're not just going to have a knowledge that this is the case. They're going to experience it personally. They are going to feel terrible fear. And same way, the next one, knowledge of contemplation of danger. If you're a person who still 
who's basically it's a person whose insight into impermanence and suffering has gotten ahead of your insight. Impermanence, emptiness, and suffering has gotten ahead of your insight into no self. Then instead of it being the realization that that which is fearful is dangerous, you're going to experience a state of misery. It's going to be a knowledge of misery instead. And likewise, whereas for somebody who's better prepared, the next thing that happens will be the knowledge of contemplation, of disenchantment, they will experience being disenchanted and no longer having the same desire for things. They'll feel a release from that. But if they're this other kind of person who still, they're a self, they're a self in this world of dangerous, illusory things that are really impermanent and empty, they are going to experience disgust. So, so there's, that's the difference in those two different names. Knowledge of desire for deliverance? Well, it's exactly that. It's, you come to a place where, in the next five minutes I'll cover the whole thing, I'll have the rest of the weekend too. <laughs> <laughs> the knowledge of desire for deliverance is, I mean, it, it is basically the realization that there's no going back. This is the only place to go is forward. That, that, that this is bad news where I am now. Knowledge of desire for the deliverance is, oh my God. (laughs) I want to come back to um, the concept of of perception. When everything is perception and it's emptiness, when I see other people, when people see me, uh, it's an illusion. They can't know me and I can't know them. Isn't that also a concept or a recipe for complete aloneness and not because well, there's a difference between not really knowing somebody and not knowing them at all. And when you know that you can't ever really know somebody, it makes it possible for you to know them much better than you otherwise would have, even though you don't really know them. Well, it's a little bit, but do you see what I mean? If if I think I've got you pegged, I really can't see you at all. If I know that whatever my impressions are of you are only partial and inaccurate, I'm far more open to knowing and understanding you more deeply. So it's the opposite. It becomes not the separateness. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to have enemies when you know that you don't really know anybody. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's easy to have enemies if you think you've got people figured out. I see that part, but I I still, I I struggle with intimacy on that level, you know? We all have, I have, you know, I want to be recognized, I want to be seen. That that's this ego that is self, I know that. So when the self and the ego are not existing and I pro- I project this on my partner also and it's not existing, but where are we really connecting then? Where is Well, okay, there's another part to this too. You see, 
in this process, you're coming to know yourself. You're coming to know yourself much more deeply. And part of what you come to know is that I am not, that the ideas I have about who I am are just as empty as the ideas that I have about who you are, okay? But I am coming to know a lot more of who I really am as a result of which I see myself in you and I see you in myself. And so in that sense, at, at the truer level of who you are, I know that much better because I know that you and I are the same. And I see that these ideas of who you are, they're just my ideas of who you are. And I see that your ideas of who you are are the same thing. They're just your ideas of who you are. And your ideas aren't necessarily any better or more accurate than my ideas, and I'll bet you can think of instances where you know that that's true, right? <laughs> They're just different sets of ideas of, of, of who we are. But as you come to know that more core part of yourself and who you really are, and I know that's who you really are too, that we're really not different, that the consciousness that looks out of your eyes is exactly the same consciousness that looks out of my eyes. So there's a lot more intimacy. Not only that, when I know that you know that I know. <laughs> there is more, there's more intimacy, but at the same time more aloneness when I know, but you don't know that I know. Okay. <laughs> yes. I want to ask again about uh, the knowledge of arising and passing away. Yes. I think prior to the explanation you just gave, I thought it was, I don't know what I thought it was. Um, so, if, okay, so when an event happens, you get an email, and or I get an email, and it's something that for some reason, it irritates me, and I can see the irritation coming, and I can identify that it's coming, and I can even identify if I attach to it, and sometimes I don't, and I notice, okay, I'm not attaching to that irritation. Sometimes I, I let it go and do attach to it, but then it goes away. Is that what you're talking about, or can you explain again that, that a little bit about that is what I'm talking about at one particular scale. The knowledge of arising and passing away in terms of daily life is happening on the scale of you yeah, you, you see a particular emotional reaction to event, you see the desire, aversion, attachment, intentions, intentions and so forth uh, arising and passing away. In meditation, which is a far more refined and focused situation, it's like you're, you're, the microscope zooms in, and so you see rising and passing away in a much finer level of detail. But it's still the same thing. What you see when you have the experience of arising and passing away that like you just described, the the arising of the emotional reaction and the recognition of it, uh, and then the passing away as it's replaced by uh, the, next, the next event, mental event that that 
emotion has triggered. Each of these lasts for, who knows, anywhere from a relatively large fraction of a second to more than a second at a time, right? In meditation, when you focus in on these, you will begin to see that this process is occurring at a much finer scale. It's exactly the same process. What you thought, there, you, you perceive this interval in which an emotion arose and was present, was recognized, and then in which it faded away. When you zoom in on it, you'll see the emotion arose and it was followed in turn by a whole sequence of other mental events. And then we returned back to the emotion again and started over. And so it happened. So what dominated in that sequence was the emotion. And so when seen from a bigger distance, you know, that's what you see, is you see the emotion in that interval. But when you zoom in, you'll see that at a very fine scale, a feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral arises. A feeling of desire, aversion arises. There is uh, there is a reification of self and, and object uh, associated with some kind of intention, and then the process keeps repeating itself. It takes a while for it to become strong enough that <coughs> that the that the craving is the dominant thing that you perceive. The, the desire that comes from the feeling. And uh, likewise, that repeats itself a few times before it's the reification of, well, I've got to do this, that becomes real, the desire for action. So it's not different. It's the same thing. It's just on different scales. To perceive this thing in meditation, usually it's going to happen after you've been, uh, you're pretty good at meditation, you have really good concentration, really good awareness, and you've probably been you've probably been sitting in retreat for ten days already, and you've reached the point where most of your sits are lasting about two hours at a time, two, three hours, then you're gonna have that, that level of resolution. But it doesn't matter if you ever have that. If you see it happening in your daily life, you see what's important. You've got the essence of it. If you, if you have that experience of seeing it at a very fine-grained level in meditation, all it does is strengthen the insight and deepen the insight that much more quickly, especially the part of it that says, this is the way it always is, this is the way it always has been, this is the way it always will be, this is the way it is everywhere and at all times. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about uh, love. And I think what part of it is for me is that when I say I love my wife or my children, I'm esteeming them, and I'm thinking of them in terms of their potential to be one with God or in unity, mm -hmm. the same hope I have for myself. Yes. And that's what I'm calling partly love in a way, or even intimacy. Mm -hmm. Well, that's genuine love. That That is also, it has a component of seeing yourself in the other, yeah. and your other in, 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 in yourself. You're seeing how you are both the same, and the highest aspiration that you hold for yourself, you hold for them. Yeah, and, and that is, that's a much more genuine kind of love uh, than, than more conditional kinds of loves that dominate most of the time. Well, I have some of that too, but of course you do. All together. Yeah, of course you do. We have a mixture of all of those. 
Yeah. And, you know, in terms of really loving another person, you cannot understate that to really love them is to accept them exactly the way they are. To the degree that you would have them be the slightest bit different, which isn't to say that you would have them enjoy more success and happiness and everything else tomorrow than they do today. But in this moment, they're perfect the way they are. Now that's that's where you read that's where you There was a thread to this weekend. <laughs> I have a question regarding the thread. Because <laughs> I'm really curious. You were about to say before the break about the, the next step in the, yeah. in the thing, the groupings, and, and explain what the deal was with that and why it was kind of in the order that it is. Yeah. And, and like some more clarification. I'm, I'm going to go to that. There was one more yeah, hand that went up. So. That was mine. Oh, that was it. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's great. The let's, knowledge. Let's, uh, let's go back. <coughs> First of all, er everyone's cool with what these things, what these insights are here. And intellectually, you set the groundwork for them. You see them. They're easy to see. Would you, well, relatively easy. They're relatively easy to see and experience. And it's by continuing to see and experience them from the perspective of knowing that they're trying to tell you something that they become insight. Okay? <coughs> the next, we do the same thing again. It's called knowledge comprehension by groups. Yeah. Boy, is that ever a weird name. <laughs> How do you uh, say that? What? Can you say that? Which one, which one? The long one at the, at the end of the first. Anicham Kayatina, okay. Yeah. But we'll just stick to the title here first. <laughs> um, as I said, it's what was previously ex expressed as two different knowledges under, uh, under two different purification headings, now expressed as only one knowledge that involves the same two steps. First, you study and think about it. You contemplate it. You try to understand it intellectually. Then, you validate that through direct experience in your meditation. So it involves the same two steps. Okay. Uh, it's called comprehension by groups because what you're trying to comprehend are impermanence, no self, and suffering. And you comprehend them by taking each of these categories of Dharma study that we talked about before, Nama and Rupa, the five aggregates, the 18 elements, and so forth, and you re-examine them from the point of view of impermanence, no self, and suffering. Now does the title of that make a little more sense? Knowledge of comprehending the three characteristics by examining each of the groups you previously studied from the point of view of these. So impermanence, I mentioned this before, there's a problem with the word impermanence in England, English because we think that it means that 
that there are things and they last but they don't last long and that's not what impermanence is saying impermanence is saying there is nothing but continuous change which you which doesn't need to be a part of your understanding at this point but which means that there are no things if there is nothing but change there is only process and no things but nevertheless that's the meaning of impermanence is that there is only continuous change in the sense of continuous passing away nothing can be grasped to no self if you if a person has already studied the five aggregates and now they're looking at the five aggregates from the point of view of no self they realize that these five aggregates include everything that I can call myself and not only that they're constantly changing consciousness you're conscious of one thing then you're conscious of another then of something different feelings pleasant unpleasant neutral are falling one right after another as fast as they can the same with all of the things sensations perceptions mental formations but in spite of that <coughs> right this is who dot 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 I wonder where that came from <laughs> that was supposed to say this is who I am this is myself that's what the original was <laughs> and we think this is who I am this is myself now here just to make it clear uh, some people get confused and think no self means I don't exist it doesn't mean that it means that the uh, self the, uh, or soul or ego that's what's being negated it does not mean the everyday experience and we'll refer to myself myself because once again that would be nonsense to think that you don't exist you may not be what you think you are in fact you aren't but that doesn't mean that <laughs> there isn't something there that you are projecting this imputation on okay. there really is something that you're projecting it on but there is nothing there, there, it is not single it's made up of parts it is constantly changing and most important of all it's not separate and we keep coming back to this the notion of self only has meaning in terms of separation of self from other than self and so when we say no self we mean no separation there is no separate so that's, that's the no-self. And then suffering. The suffering is the recognition that if you're trying to protect, uh, if you cherish yourself and you're trying to protect the self and you're trying to gratify the self, and the self is, the self is an impermanent, uh, ever-changing illusion, that it's going to be very frustrating. I can make myself happy by eating more candy. Okay, so I eat the first piece, and that makes me pretty happy. Second piece, pretty good. Not quite, if I'm really honest, not quite as good as the first one was. Third piece, it even diminishes more. By the time I get to the tenth piece, I feel positively sick. <laughs> so, uh, the suffering comes from 
clinging to notions that are, are not true. Uh, one that, what's not mentioned in here, but what is really important to incorporate into your understanding is the notion that your happiness or suffering come from things outside of yourself. That is the most insidious notion of all. Because your mind, for whatever reason, to do with your conditioning, makes itself happy when certain things happen. But it makes itself happy. The thing that happened doesn't make you happy. Likewise, your mind, because of the way it's structured, because of its conditioning, when certain things happen, it makes you suffer. But the suffering did not come from what happened. Your mind, your mind made itself suffer because it had trained itself to make you suffer every time that happened. That's the important thing to realize. And uh, as we all know, some of the things that make me happy won't make you happy. And some of the things that make you suffer won't bother me. So right there it tells us. It comes from inside. So uh, clinging to the illusion of self and other and attributing your happiness and unhappiness to the things that you do and don't have is a recipe for being ha unhappy a lot. That's the truth of suffering. So you come to understand these things. What's the next slide? No, that doesn't. You come to understand these things as well as you can intellectually. And then they become insight when you begin to see them in your own experience. And this can happen in meditation or out of meditation. Uh, if we look at, at what happens in meditation, sometimes you're happy in meditation and sometimes you're not. You need to pay enough attention to what's going on that you can recognize what's making you unhappy in your meditation. So if you sit down to meditate and you're expecting can be just like yesterday, I'm going to get really calm and I'm going to get really clear and I'm going to be able to stay on the breath for a long period of time and I'm starting to have these really nice feelings come in my body and it doesn't happen. You had an expectation. Now you're disappointed. You know, and uh, our unhappiness in meditation comes from that. It comes from expectations. When you first began to meditate, you made yourself unhappy a lot of the time because you thought, well, I'm going to be soon experiencing all these wonderful things people talk about, and blah, blah, blah. And you sit down and it doesn't happen. And you're feeling impatient and you're feeling disappointed. And then you start to think there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not doing this right. The point is you're, feeling, you're making yourself feel unhappy. Meditation... If you just relax and you say, okay, I got the instructions, I'll follow the instructions, I'll see what happens. It'll be already with me no matter what happens. You're not going to be unhappy. As a matter of fact, because those negative mental attitudes won't be arising and interfering with your ability to meditate, you'll have a more successful meditation and you'll have that experience of peace and success. When you succeed in staying on the dress for longer periods of time, it gives you this feeling of satisfaction and reward and accomplishment and that feels good and the peace of mind feels good and everything else. <laughs> so if you 
If you pay attention to what happens when you meditate, you'll discover these things, these truths about suffering. You'll discover the truths about impermanence. You'll see that that thoughts and emotions come and go, and sensations come and go. It's an interesting thing when you're meditating that there may be sounds from the neighborhood, and they're easy to let, let go. But when <coughs> thoughts and memories start intruding from your mind, you react to it in a totally different way. Is there really any difference? Over here is your unconscious mind, and for reasons of its own, it's causing certain thoughts to appear in your consciousness. Here's the outside world, and because it has its own way of working, and because the neighbor bought a dog a year ago, and the and a kid down the street got a motorcycle with a loud muffler, sounds are coming in, you know. But you treat the one set totally differently than you do the other. And the trick is to realize that there is no difference between them. That there's just phenomena arising and passing away. And everything, everything is the same in that regard. Impermanence in meditation, or not impermanence, no self in meditation. A lot of our problems come from the fact that we think we we need to be in charge. I'm the meditator here. This is what I want my attention to do. <laughs> this is what, my, what I want my awareness to do. What the hell does this mind think it's doing going dull on me? <laughs> the sooner you realize there's no self in charge of your mind, the better everything's going to go. The happier you're going to be. The, smoother it's going to be, the easier it's going to be to get those different parts of your mind in line and cooperating and producing a good positive result. So there's plenty of opportunity of insight into no self in the meditation experience. Uh, so need, need I say more? Yes. Just one point of clarification around the the use of the phrase comprehension by groups. What is groups referring to? I'm not sure I understand. The, the other parts groups, The groups that are being referred to are uh, the five aggregates would be one group of things that you try to discern these three characteristics in. The, uh, the 18 elements, which are the uh, sense objects, uh, the sense bases, and the uh, consciousnesses. You discern those and, and those are the groups. Okay. So you're comprehending the three characteristics in the same groups that you already studied earlier. And then as, as, you, uh, as you practice, insight comes when you start seeing that this is true. Okay. <coughs> I think it's probably time for us to take a break before we move on to the next topic. If there are, let me see if there's other questions. Let me see if there's anything else I wanted to mention before we abandon the topic that we're on. <coughs> One, uh, yeah, in the handout. In describing these, you'll notice I used the word impersonal rather than no self, because I thought that's a little bit 
closer to what your subjective experience of this insight is going to be. No self is a pretty dramatic degree of realization. But what you're going to realize is that the behavior of your mind is has this quality of impersonality. It's going on by itself. It's doing its thing. Right. So that's why I use that. 